Well, it's my pleasure to be here this morning. Um, there's no place really that has impacted my life more than the master's college slash university slash seminary. Uh, I'm honored to be here. I'm, I'm grateful to be opening up the word for you today. My desire is that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, but ultimately that Christ would be preached. Um, I'm thankful for the administration to allow me to be here. I'm really thankful for Dr. Halstead who uh, asked me to, to be one of the speakers for the student ministries. I do, uh, I t- I'm an adjunct here. I do teach New Testament Survey 1 and 2, and uh, I also will be teaching next semester a theology of church and family for the student ministers track. And I'm really excited about this new track that we have here at, at the college, at the university. I'll be doing that all, all morning. Um, one of the things that I think as I, I think back on my time here is uh, it was 20 years ago that I sat over there up in the bleachers, falling asleep in chapel. Um, I had just gotten saved. I was a rough kid from Jersey. Uh, I showed up. Um, My mom got pregnant with me when she was 17. Uh, She worked multiple jobs uh, in in South Jersey, um, just across from Philadelphia. And, uh, and I really was just on my own and got involved in, in drugs and alcohol at an early age. Uh, and she just had enough of me when I was 16. She kicked me out. And I, I basically bounced around from place to place to place. And if you would have asked me all through that time, am I a Christian? I would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. My family, they're all Christians. We go to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, and uh, we love Jesus, uh, I guess. And... I must have prayed the sinner's prayer 10 times, 12 times, hoping it would stick. Um, And it wasn't until I was 20 years old that my cousin, who is a couple years older than me, I didn't really have a dad in my life, and he was was kind of the the main person in my life, my cousin, who is the male role model, and, and he died of a heroin overdose. I was just, I was shocked. I was, I was also... Um, headed down the same path. Um, And I started to contemplate, where would I really be if I died? And uh, it was through that the Lord opened up my eyes, and I I genuinely uh, became a Christian, but I was a Christian with a lot of baggage. I showed up to campus, uh, and uh, people ran from me. And that is not a joke. Like, they literally avoided me. I uh, had a really bad attitude, really thick accent, so I think people were scared of that, too. Hey, how you doing? Oh. Um, one, one girl asked me, where are you from? And I said, New Jersey. And then she said, what state's that in? And being from Jersey and just saved, I said, are you kidding me? What, are you stupid? So I made friends fast. My first meal was in the cafeteria. I had taken a Greyhound bus from Philly to Los Angeles, it broke down twice. It was the longest bus ride of my life. Took like four days to get out here. I show up, eight o'clock, wow week. Um, It's like the the worst week of my life, wow week. (laughs) 
because they kept me up all day, all night, and they wanted to ask me all kinds of questions, and I was not very social. And so my first meal up in the cafeteria with my roommate, and he's looking at me, and he's asking me all sorts of questions, and he's just talking and talking and talking and talking. And finally, I just look at him and said, will you shut up? <laughs> so the Lord was and has been gracious to, to grow me here at this university, to put me in a church that, through all my, my issues and challenges, loved me, walked alongside of me, and it was one of those things that, that looking back, I, I really saw the, the, the issue of what is true discipleship? What is, what is truly following after Christ? And, and so I, I love college ministry. I, I love being around college students. I think it's because it was probably the most impactful in my life as I, as I uh, showed up and people invested in me and poured in my life and, and helped me and smoothed out some of the rough edges and uh, the Lord blessed me with a wonderful wife, uh, Stephanie Beals. She's amazing if you know her. Um, she, she avoided me for two years uh, as well. And then I wore her down um, and the Lord blessed us um, with, a, with a marriage and really thankful for that. Student ministries, I get the tail end of student ministries in college uh, and, and I would echo, uh, churches need solid, biblically trained, biblically fundamental, um, sound people ministering to the youth because it's been a watered down gospel. But I've been involved in college ministry in some capacity for almost 18 years um, and I'm on the, uh, as an adjunct professor here at the Bible department and I've seen a lot of different trends in those 18 years, and usually, like when I first showed up, I heard, oh, the youth, they're leaving the church, and I'm sure, you know, back in the 60s, the youth are leaving the church, and I'm sure, you know, like 10 years after Paul died, the youth are leaving the church, because the youth are always leaving the church. But it's one of those things where, in the last several years, it's really popular to, to read articles on why millennials are leaving the church. And there's all sorts of of reasons why, and, and millennials get a bad rap. I'm sure you, you see it all the time, like the, what's the millennial um, uh, anti-theft device for a car? It's a stick shift, right? Um, you, can, you can see millennials in the workplace, and, and they, they get a, a bad rap, and, and so even in the church realm, if you read up on, on the latest trends, millennials are leaving the church, they're, they're, they're walking away from the faith, Young evangelicals think the church is either too conservative, too old-fashioned, too exclusive, or too political, and they're done. You can Google it, even now, and in your search engine, you'll come up with several different articles on why millennials are leaving the church. But the reality of it is, is that people leave the church because they're not true disciples, they walk away from the faith because they haven't truly committed to Christ. There's a disconnect between what it really means to follow Christ and the general consumer-oriented packaged Christianity. The sad reality is that the church seems to be more consumer-driven, trying to get the millennials back. Let's get a coffee shop. Let's put the pastor in skinny jeans, and let's have some smoke in our worship sessions, and we'll get the millennials back. But they're leaving the church because true discipleship 
is extreme. It costs. Listen to this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Imagine hearing that. That's extreme. They're radical words. They're shocking to people who hear that. In fact, just a couple months ago, I sat down with an older couple who had been divorced, and now they wanted to get remarried, and they wanted me to do their, their premarital. And I said, you do realize I hang out with college students, right? Like, I don't really hang out with older people. Yes, we'll, we want you to, to work with us on this. And as, as we started talking through it, it really became evident that that there was a lack of commitment to Christ. There wasn't actually genuine discipleship. There wasn't a following after him wholeheartedly. And when we get to these verses, they were shocked, even a little taken aback. Discipleship is extreme. It's costly. And people are unwilling to give up everything. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 14 and And look at the nature of discipleship. Why are people leaving the church? It's the same reason why people left Jesus' ministry. Because they're not true disciples. Because it costs. And the road is difficult. Luke 14. Two basic points today. I'm departing from the age-old three points in a poem. Um, with two points, and it's simply this. Examples of wrong priorities. Verses 7 to 24 are examples of wrong priorities. It's the Pharisees. They're basically going to pretend as if they're religious and love God, and Jesus is going to confront them on that. And he's going to point out where their true priorities are, the wrong priorities, the examples of a wrong priority. And then in 25 through 35, the ultimate priority, the extreme nature of discipleship, what it means to truly follow Christ. And and there are some here today that may not be a true believer, a a true follower, a sold-out follower. And and I know that because some of my friends when I was in college got saved. People in, in our ministry get saved. People get saved here at Masters all the time. But then there's those of us who who truly do follow after Christ. And whether you're young in the faith or old in the faith, you can grow in making Christ priority. In fact, that's the theme of chapel this year. Christ is all. And growing in that is an important aspect. Luke chapter 14. Let, Let me set the stage briefly on the gospel of Luke. There's a couple things that are really important before we jump in. And the first thing is this, is that Luke is is arranged geographically. If you were to think of the gospel, it's it's basically geographical. If you were to just take a a simple read-through, it's pointing out where Jesus is ministering and theologically where he's heading. He's heading to the cross. The first couple chapters are about his birth and, and early background, and he's in Jerusalem or Judea in chapters one, two, and, and some of three. It's that early part. It's down in Jerusalem and the Judean area. And then it shifts and it moves 
from the Judean area over and up to the Galilean area and his main ministry in chapters four through nine where Jesus is going around and in Galilee and he's doing ministry and he's calling uh, disciples. Here's the key part, in case, in case that all sounded like womp, 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 womp. Chapter nine is a switch. There's a, there's a specific focus at the end of chapter nine, verse 51. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem to die. And in 9.51, all the way to middle of chapter 19, roughly about 10 to 11 chapters, is this long journey to Jerusalem for Christ to take the cross and die. He's headed there. He, he deals with Peter. Who, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And Jesus starts talking about his death and in Matthew, the, choral, uh, the, the um, synoptic gospel talks about, oh no, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. And it's at that time he shows his glory in the transfiguration up in Caesarea Philippi. And from up there, he starts to head to Jerusalem. And it's a long journey to the Passover to die. And on his way, he's talking about a lot of topics, but the topic he talks about from 9 to 19 is... Discipleship. Chapter 9. Pick up your cross daily. Follow me. Deny yourself. All through 9 through 19 is discipleship. He's headed to Jerusalem. And you can look at every other chapter deals with he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's traveling. He's moving. Moving to the cross. He's moving to die. He's got a short time with his disciples. People are following him, going to the Passover. Chapter 14. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And chapter 14 is going to be this emphasis on eating bread. And at first it seems random, and it seems kind of odd, a little bit out of place, a little unfamiliar, but actually it's vital to understand in this chapter. They're going to eat bread, chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 15, you have a guy shouting out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you, none of those invited shall taste of my dinner. So all this is set at a dinner. And typically, after the morning Sabbath, much like maybe a Jewish form of chapel, after the morning Sabbath, you go into the synagogue, and afterwards, you go to get an afternoon meal. And this leader of the Pharisees puts on a big dinner and invites all of the most important people, and Jesus comes. And the stage is set to where now this is gonna be the fourth Sabbath controversy, challenging to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath and break their traditions. And there's a man with dropsy, which is basically edema, where your legs fill up with fluid, and your arms fill up with fluid, based on a heart or kidney issue, and Jesus heals him. And they're all watching closely, But notice verses seven following. And Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests. And he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table. Now, I'm just gonna pause for a moment and just say, 
this is the most awkward dinner in the Gospels. There are going to be some really difficult things spoken here. Jesus enters in. And the dinner table is basically, it's what's called a triclinium. It's a U-shape, low couch type of dinner. People laid on their side. They didn't sit in chairs with their hands on the table. They laid on their side and they ate around a U-shaped table or U-shaped couches with a table in the center. And typically, the host had the premier spot and anyone to his right and to his left were elevated. They were honored. So Jesus walks into dinner or this meal and they're all running to get the best seats. They're jockeying for position. Jesus notices this. And the irony is, they're looking at Jesus intently. Will he heal on the Sabbath? He does, goes to dinner, and he's watching them. And the theme that's going to come through from verses 7 to 24 is is basically this. The self-pursuit self-gratification, self-fulfillment of these so-called disciples of God. The Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Well, we know they're the, the religious leaders of the day. Basically, they had pretty decent theology. They believed that the word of God was actually the word of God. Unlike the Sadducees, they took it literally. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in predestination and human responsibility. They believed in the millennial kingdom of God on earth, this glorious reign. And yet they were external. External religious observances, not internal relationship with God. So he looks around and look at verse eight. When you're invited by someone at a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy that last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Can, can you picture that? Just for a moment. Sometimes like you, you read and maybe you're not really connecting it. Think about the setting. Jesus walks in. They're all jockeying for position. They're fighting for the best seats. And he basically puts them on notice. He, he says, as they're rushing to the best seats, you really shouldn't go for the best seats. How awkward to start off a dinner. Somebody shows up to your house, people are jockeying to sit, and they just say, you know what, you guys are all selfish. You guys are only concerned about yourselves. That's gonna put dinner in a really awkward situation. Who who brought this guy in? What's he saying? What's the issue? Self is more important than others, right? I mean, humility or the lack of humility really is seen in how you treat people. And for them, they're going for the best seats. Why? 
because it was a social status issue. You sit at the best seat, you were the highest of social order. Ooh, you're really important. You're amazing. You're something. And what's Jesus do? He basically tells a story, and he's really, in a nutshell, going back to Proverbs 25. Don't sit at the best seat because you're gonna be humiliated. And humiliation is different than being humble. Humiliation is you wanted something and you didn't get it and now you look really awkward in front of everybody. Go to the back. They were self-seeking men. And then Jesus in verse 11 says this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's basically what James will say, right? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You can talk, it's okay. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Self-focused people. Now, then he turns. He's just addressed everybody running for the tables. Then he turns, and, and what does he say? And he said to the one who invited him. He said, it, he said to the host. He said to the leader of the Pharisees. Actually, this is probably the big guy. He's probably the one who is in charge of the synagogue. He's probably the one who everybody looks up to. He's probably wealthy. He's invited all the important people. And he's just basically put on blast everybody that ran for the table. And now he looks at the host and he says, and you probably shouldn't invite all of the most influential people. You should probably invite the people who can't repay you. Again, how awkward is this dinner? And he went on to say, the one who invited him, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return that you will, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. What's the issue here? I want the best. I want the best at the expense of anybody around me. I'm focused on, I'm going to get mine. And he looks at the host and he says, don't, don't do these as a way to increase your own status. Because like, what would happen in that day is you would throw a big luncheon, you would invite all the, the high ups, they would come, they would be honored, and then you would get an invitation later so you could go and you could get honor and basically the motive is self. And it's not like we don't understand this. Like, your mom and dad did not have to teach you how to be selfish, did they? comes natural. They have to teach you how to share. And I remember helping my young brother-in-law with some fries. And his concept of sharing was, you give me what you have. You need to share. Basically, I want your fries. No, that's not how we share. We've split, no, you share. We all have that when we're kids. 
We all have that on the wing. We all have that in life. Self-centered, self-focused. In fact, we live in a, in a culture that is consumed with self. We even have a style of photography named after self. If it wouldn't be sacrilegious, I'd try to take a selfie now. Or technically, it would be an ussy with all of you, right? In fact, I've, I, I, do, I am blessed. I do get to travel to, to places. And, and it doesn't matter whether it's the East Coast, South America, Europe, Asia. It's amazing to see everyone filtering to perfection their latest selfie. The fish lip look. Have you seen that? Just the right angle. If I move my chin just a little bit, it won't look like I'm as big as I am. Fix my hair. We're consumed with self. Self Self-fulfillment. What makes you happy? It doesn't matter what Jesus said. It matters what makes you happy because he wants you happy. He continues on, and, and this is where it gets pretty uncomfortable. He says, they're going to be repaid at the resurrection. And for a Jewish person to hear the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, that was the millennial kingdom when the Old Testament saints are going to be raised and enjoy the blessing, this beautiful banquet that God is going to provide. Isaiah 25, verse 6, there's going to be choice meats and aged wine and and rejoicing in the kingdom. And one awkward guy at the end of the table says, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom. What? Like he just shouts it out. Everybody has been confronted on their selfishness grabbing the table. The host has been confronted on his selfishness of who he invites. And now this guy says, hey, isn't it grand that we're all going to be eating from God's banquet in the kingdom? And Jesus continues on. Verse 16. But he says to them, a man was giving a big dinner. And he invited many. Don't you find that interesting that Jesus uses a parable of a man giving a big dinner, inviting many to a big dinner, having been invited, and basically confronting everybody involved? The dinner hour came, and he sent his slave to say, those who have been invited, come, for everything is ready now. And it's not like everybody had an Apple Watch where, you know, it buzzes or a Fitbit Check your cell phone. Like, you don't even need watches anymore, right? We just have it right here. You had to send someone to invite them because it took a lot to put on a dinner. It's not like, you know, let's just throw some stuff in the microwave, have people over. No, you had, it was a big deal. So Jesus uses a parable, and he says, hey, there's a, there's a man who gave a big dinner. He invited many. The dinner hour had come, he sent his slave to to bring everybody in, and look at verse 18, and they all alike began to make excuses. Basically, all of them at the same time said, we can't come. The first one said, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. What kind of a lame excuse is that? You have dinner plans. You know you have dinner plans. It's time to go to dinner, and you say, "Ah, just bought a house, haven't looked at it. 
Can't go to dinner, gotta go look at the house I just purchased. It's not normal to purchase something without looking at it. But all three of these excuses are gonna betray something. Where their priorities are. The next one. I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to try them out. I gotta take them around the farm, see if they walk. I can't come to dinner. I got five oxen I just bought that I need to see are they actually going to work? Look at the last excuse. So each one of these, both of them, please excuse me, please excuse me. And then the last one says, I'm married. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> I don't even need to be excused. I'm married. Now, in that culture, you, you were able to take a year off from military service because you were married. But that didn't stop you from going to dinner. Think about that. Um, you, you said you RSVP'd and now it's time to, to go? No, I'm sorry, I, I'm married. Where's the priority? In this example, priority is with family Priority is with your possessions. Priority is with your status. And the slave came back and told the head of the household, and he became angry, and he said to the slave, go out at once and go to the streets of the city and bring in <laughs> the exact same types of people he told the host to invite. Verse 13, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. So he goes and he does that and then he goes back out and, and, he's, and he says, hey, there's still room. And the master says, go back out and, and go even further. Go to the highways and to the hedges and invite people that are of great distance and, and way out of the way, maybe even some homeless people living in a bush. Come. Really, the fascinating thing is, is that this picture, this is crazy, this picture is the Old Testament prophets going to Israel and inviting Israel and preparing Israel for the Messiah. And they're, they're saying, yes, we want the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, they're not interested. They're more interested in self than the Messiah. The religious leaders say, no, no thanks. I like my status more than I want to go after Christ. So then the gospel goes out and the poor and, and, and those in Israel come to faith. And then it pictures this idea of, of the, the gospel going to the Gentiles, going out to the streets and the, the highways and the, the distances. And then he ends this parable in a rather awkward way for the guy that spoke up and said, hey, I can't wait to eat in the millennial kingdom. And he basically says, none of those people who are invited shall eat at my dinner. The wrong motives. Self-centered, self-gratification. I got too much to do. I'm more concerned about other things than Christ. Relationships are more important 
than actually following after Christ. In fact, talking with this couple, it was a big deal because there was, there was some things that he's probably not a Christian, and then all of a sudden it became like, should you marry this? And it became pretty difficult to then come to the point of marriage or Christ. Is Christ more important than your own agenda? That's a tough one. I'm not here to just kind of beat you to death with this, but I want to encourage us. Like, where is our priority? Is it Christ-focused? The ultimate priority is in verses 25 through 35. It's pretty simple. It's three. The priority of Christ above every relationship. The priority of Christ above every relationship. The priority of Christ above your own self, your own life, your own agenda, your own ideas, your own desires. And the priority of Christ above your possessions. He starts off with this. He's at the dinner. He confronts the people around them for their self-focus, self-interest, self-pursuit, self-fulfillment. Everything's about them. And if God matches up with them, then that's okay. But when he doesn't, it's a, that's all right. I'm going to do my own thing. I just, my relationships are more important. My career is more important. The things that I want to do. My happiness is more important. And then he ends with those people, they won't taste of my dinner. He leaves this dinner, verse 25. Now the crowds were going along with him. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's making his way slowly to the cross. And he turns and he says... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How shocking for the people around him to hear that. I mean, think about it this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your Husbands, parents love your children. And here Jesus says, hate them? That's really hard to reconcile until you realize that it's an idiomatic expression used in Jewish culture that it's basically this, that you love God so much that in comparison it looks like hate to everything else around you. That you love Christ so much. And Matthew 10.37 gives kind of a, a different insight into this. Matthew 10.37 says this, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And interestingly enough, what was the excuse of the last person? I am married. I have a wife. Can't come. And now Jesus is going to hit right back on that and say, devotion to me 
is of utmost priority. It's not, he's not soft pedaling. He's not like, add Jesus to your life. That was one of the biggest challenges going to India when they had 330 million gods is that it didn't take much to add Jesus to that collection. The exclusivity of Christ. Loving God more than relationships. I mean, it comes at a cost. No one in our life should usurp the position given to him. And I don't know how many people I've talked with, and even in my own life has, have wrestled with, do I make the relationships in my life an idol that replaces God? Am I seeking those more than I'm actually seeking after God. Not that I'm ignoring my wife, not that I'm ignoring the people around me, not that I'm dishonoring my father and mother, but do I love Christ more? Am I seeking him more? Are other relationships being worshiped? The next is the priority of Christ above your own self. Verses 26, the end of 26, down to 32. You have to hate even your life, verse 26. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's denial, denying of yourself. Joe read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and, and I love chapter 5, verse 15, because it really hits us in the face. Paul says that, that Christ died for us so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died and was raised on our behalf. How many of us live for ourselves? How many of us seek after our own? How many of us use the excuses of, well, I don't want to do that. I got homework to do. I got this to do. I got that to do. How many of us place ourselves as most important? What's costly? Verses 28 down to 32, basically, two illustrations. If you're gonna build a tower, which is basically to protect your vineyard or your house, this big tower that you can see over, if you're gonna build a tower, you're gonna count the cost. You're gonna see if you have enough to basically build it. And if you don't have enough and you only build it halfway, everybody's gonna mock you, right? You're gonna walk by and say, look at the idiot that only built half a tower. That guy was foolish. He was stupid. He, he didn't count the cost. The second illustration is a king going to war. The army that's coming after you is twice as many people, and you have to count the cost. Can I defeat an army twice as big as me? Count the cost. And the last one is the priority of Christ above all your possessions. 33 to 35 so that none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Picture this. Luke 5, Jesus has called Peter, Andrew, James, John. The way he does it is fabulous. I mean, it's awesome. I wish I was there. He gets in a boat, all four of those guys, they're brothers, they're fishermen, they have a big fishing business, dad has lots of servants, they're wealthy, 
They go out into the Sea of Galilee, and Christ says to expert fishermen who fished all night and caught nothing, toss the net overside. Pull it up. And Peter says, um, Jesus, like I know you like, you do carpentry, right? And I fish. Like, man, I've been fishing all night, and we caught nothing. But nevertheless, I'm going to obey you. Tosses it over, and what happens? The biggest catch of his life. Fish at that time, during the hot day, went down deep into the sea. At night, they come up and eat the bugs that hover. And so to fish, and to fish really well, you fish at night. He fished at night, up all night, nothing. They have the boats pulled in. They're washing the nets. They're finished. They're ready to go home. Jesus says, let's go out. Let's go fish. In the middle of the day, the wrong time, the wrong hour, the wrong way, And it's the greatest catch of fish in his life. And Peter realizes at that moment how proud and arrogant he is and he humbles himself and bows before Christ and says, depart me for I'm a sinner. And Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder, fear not, pulls him up and says, I'm gonna make you fishers of men, right? We sung that song as little kids. I will make you fishers of men. Am I the only one that sung that as a kid? Okay, good. And then it says in verse 11, They left everything and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but like if I make the biggest catch of my life, I'm selling Jesus fish. Because you can get more for Jesus fish than normal fish at that time. There's a whole lot of Jesus fish, double the price, making a killing, and saying, hey, now I got extra money to follow you. They left everything. They're following him on the way to the cross, and they hear Jesus say, unless you give up everything and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And if you don't have these three priorities, if he is not the center of your life above every relationship, if he is not the center of your life even over your own self and your own self-desires and what you want to do, if he is not above everything that you own, then you are like salt that has lost its saltiness. And here's how graphic Jesus is, in a good way. That salt's not even worth putting in the manure pile. That's some nasty salt. That's some worthless salt. So where do we end on this? I'm a little over and I apologize. Where do we end on this? People are walking away from the faith it's a sad thing for me to think back with the people that, that I went to school with. One guy in particular who I went to school with, I was, I was seen as most likely to be incarcerated, most likely to punch my RA, most likely to drop words that I shouldn't be using my freshman year. There was another guy who was voted most likely to be the next Dr. MacArthur. That guy walked away from the faith ended up dying as an atheist. I don't know what kind of sense of humor God has, but he has put me in ministry doing the things that I love. And the thing is, is that it's not uncommon for people to walk away from the faith. But at the core root of that 
is that they've never counted the cost. That Jesus is not all in their life. That may be you. You may have something to, to wrestle with with the Lord. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your own agenda. Maybe it's your schoolwork, which is an idol. I can't serve in church. I can't go on outreach week. Ooh, stepping on toes. I can't, I got too much. Maybe it's the things that you have. All of us need to think through the priority of Christ in our life. My hope is that's an encouragement to you. And here's the great thing about Jesus. He is gracious and kind and a loving Savior. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all righteousness, unrighteousness. May we be a university who truly has Christ as our priority. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, to be reminded of some very challenging things. May we honor you. May we seek after you. Father, may we have you as the ultimate priority. In your son's name, amen.